Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today, I'm speaking with playwright Chantal Bilodeau about her play Forward. Chantal, thanks for coming to the program. Thank you for having me. Could you tell us how you first became involved with theater? Uh, Yeah, it was a little bit of an accident. I went to graduate school for film. I was interested in doing documentary films, and... As part of my program, um, the students ahead of me, so as part of my program, we had to do a little bit of everything. And the students ahead of me for the writing classes were going into the theater department because the film department didn't offer that many writing classes. So I followed and in I had never done theater before. And in starting to get involved with writing for theater, um, I guess it shifted my interest. And then I... I forgot about film and concentrated in on theater. Oh, that's so interesting. So it was a, a bit later in life than maybe some people who grow up uh, around around theater. Yes, absolutely. I had gone to see theater and, you know, I enjoyed it, but I sure. never thought I would be involved in it. Uh, and you're, you're French Canadian, right? Yes. And there's a, there's a long tradition of, uh, you know, really innovative uh, French Canadian theater, a lot of physical theater and stuff like that up there. Had you seen some of that stuff? Yeah, I grew up with um, Robert, Robert Lepage, who is a mm-hmm. big director in Montreal. And um, in my early 20s, he was doing some of his most extraordinary work. Um, he was starting to get very well known. And so um, that was a, certainly something I could refer to. Yeah. Yeah, his his work is often really amazing. I I've seen some of his stuff as well. Yeah, controversial recently, but uh, mm-hmm. but, but really strong. Yeah, um, and and what about theater? Kind of, uh, I don't know, jumped out at you as being as being so exciting when you were exposed to it in graduate school. Um, I felt, I guess, I felt free, and it matched my personality better because. Um, a few things that I was a little unsure about film was um, being around people, managing a lot of people all the time. And um, mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm more comfortable sitting by myself in front of a computer and then, you know, going to rehearsal and having intense periods of time where I'm around people, but knowing that I can go back to just being me and my computer. Uh, so that was a big aspect. And also there was something... Um, I think I was also more, I discovered that I, the writing was what interested me more. And in theater, you, you know, you mu- in, you're much more likely to get somewhere by writing than you would in film. You can spend hour, uh, you can spend years and years writing for film and never have anything produced. But in theater, at mm-hmm. least you can, you get the satisfaction of seeing your work. Well, I, I'm, I'm here to tell you it's very possible to spend years writing in theater and not have your work produced either also. But but uh, point taken, I, I that's certainly true that there are people who make a, make a living as screenwriters without ever having their work uh, produced. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I do feel like I notice a kind of documentary impulse in some of your work still, though, like a, a, a real serious engagement with like, 
I don't know, the real world, for lack of a better word. Like, uh, do you feel like you've still carried that impulse in in your current uh, writing? Definitely. I think so. My first career was as a graphic designer. I did that for about 10 years, a little less than 10 years. Then I went to graduate school for documentary filmmaking, and then I I switched to theater. But I feel like I carry all of those influences with me. Um, The graphic design part is my, I guess, my ability to look, to see something in images, except... I would be a terrible director because I see things flat, you know, in like 2D mm-hmm. images <laughs> printed on a piece of paper, not in 3D like you need to for uh, directing actors. Uh, and the documentary, yes, I often say that I, I write uh, fact-based fiction. So I, mm. I'm, I really enjoy doing research and tr- trying to find ways to embed this research um, very subtly into the stories I write that I I'm fascinating by the world. And so I want to capture as much as I can in the stories that I tell. Yeah. And for people who don't know your work, you've become quite well known in recent years for plays uh, about climate change. And and they're plays that are sort of not not just kind of dry, scientific, uh, uh, fact-based, you know, documentary pieces. They're really fleshed out human dramas about people dealing with climate change on, on sort of the front lines in the Arctic Circle. So how did you decide to devote so much of your time and energy to that topic? I started off um, not focusing on that at all, just as maybe any playwright does after um, finishing a playwriting program, which was writing plays about a variety of things. But um, two things happen. One is uh, I'm also a translator because my first language is French-Canadian, so I've translated a lot of playwrights from the French to English and a lot of multiple playwrights, but one in particular, I've translated seven of his plays over the course of about 10 years. And there was something about being immersed in his imagination and his work that I found very satisfying the the depth of that and so i think there was a part of me that create that was craving something similar that was one part and then the second part is um in 2007 i took a trip to alaska to visit a friend that lived there and, and he actually runs an air taxi company out of denali national park and he had been inviting me to come and visit and i had never been that far north i had never been to alaska and uh, 2007 was a year after Al Gore's first documentary, An Inconvenient Truth, came out. And it was a time where the climate change conversation was definitely more present in mainstream media. So that combined with my visit of Alaska, where definitely there people were um, feeling the effect already and being very clear about it and talking about it, which was not happening so much in the rest of the U.S., um, so that's when I had, even though I had always been interested in the environment as a hiker and somebody who likes to spend time outside, this was a, this was the first time where I thought of combining this personal interest with my professional work and being a playwright, of course, the first thing I thought of is maybe I should write a play about this. And it took a few years and, um, after this, after coming back from Alaska, Uh, You mentioned I'm Canadian, so the Canadian Arctic Territory compared to the U.S. is huge, right? The U.S. only has Alaska and Canada, I think half, at least half of the landmass of Canada 
is in uh, the Arctic. So I wanted to see what was going on there. And that's what led me eventually to write the first play of this cycle of plays about the Arctic called Sila. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. Um, so this is very interesting. I, I totally feel like for uh, maybe many playwrights going to uh, Alaska, seeing that really beautiful landscape, I've spent some time in Alaska too, would uh, perhaps inspire a play. Um, but eight plays is a little more uh, uncommon. So uh, you've, you, you have, uh, you're sort of midway through a cycle of eight plays about the Arctic Circle uh, or about one set in each country that has land in that area. So at what point did you realize you didn't want to just write one play about climate change in the far north, but you wanted to write eight plays? It was somewhere um, either while I was writing the first play or after it. I can't remember exactly, but it was so it was this craving for something. I mentioned the translation was this craving for something uh, where I could go deeper and also mm-hmm. in the process of the writing, the researching and writing the first play, I felt like there was so much more to explore and learn and that I wanted to communicate. And I was looking for some kind of container for that. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and I, you know, at first I thought I went through a few different ideas in my head. It was like, oh, maybe I can find a playwright in each country who would want to write something. And then somehow these could be presented together. And it was all very, um, it seemed very all unmanageable <laughs> from my point of view. And uh, so then I decided, well, it's my idea. You know, that's something I want to see happen. So why don't I try to write those plays? And I'm a little less than halfway through. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. I'm writing the third one, try to finish the third one now, which is based in Alaska. Um, so I have, uh, which means I have five more to go. So I have to definitely speed up if I want to get to the end of it. <laughs> <laughs> Were you inspired by any other kind of cycles of plays? I, I think of uh, August, Wilson, August Wilson's uh, century cycle of 10 plays set over the course of the 20th century. Were there any other kind of play cycles that you had in mind as, as models? Definitely August Wilson. Um, I don't think I followed his, I know his, well, so far, none of my characters show up in other plays. The plays are very distinct. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, yeah, they take place in different countries, so it would be a little bit more tricky, although I'm not ruling out the idea. Um, but I, <laughs> the way I think about August Wilson also is he just made it. He just managed to write yeah. the last play before he passed on. And so, yeah. <laughs> and I so don't, you're, you're, yeah, I'm yeah. like, okay, I have to, I have to do this. Um, but the other uh, person I look up to also is um, uh, Tony Kushner, uh, not for a cycle of plays, but for the masterful way in, in which he combines the personal and the political. Mm. Yeah. And in a way, I mean, Angels in America is is two plays, but it is, you know, six or seven hours, depending on the production. So that's almost like a cycle. Right. Itself. Right. And I've seen, I don't think I've seen. I saw, um, I forget the title, but Robert Lepage had something that was a whole day long at some point, Mm -hmm. which was presented um, at BAM in New York. And I saw that. So again, it's not exactly a cycle, but it was a, I don't know, a play that's eight hours long. And Mm -hmm. um, I also saw the first part of uh, Nushkin. She also had like a two-part, very long, maybe it was 
three or four hours each time that was presented at the Lincoln Center some years ago. Mm. And I'm sorry, I forget I forget the title, but yeah, there's something about um, there's something about how these stories are told that comes naturally to me. S- trying to um, instead of fo- just following one character through a journey, it's like about bringing different threads together and then see how they fit. Yeah, that's so interesting. I I wanted to ask you about that very question because I saw the first play in the cycle, Sila. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yes. Um, I saw that at MIT when it was produced there, gosh, probably in 2013 or so. Um, 20, and 2014. Sorry, yeah. 2014. Yes. Yeah. And that was a play that was pretty Aristotelian in its kind of, uh, its, its containment, right? It had a relatively small number of characters, relatively small number of locations unfolded over a relatively small time span. But this new play, forward takes place over 120 years and has probably two dozen characters in it. So what made you decide to work on such a larger canvas this time? Yeah, I just want to go back for a second to the first play. Um, It had, I think it had nine characters and a bunch of different storylines coming together. And actually I was critiqued for having too many (laughs) storylines. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. That was one of the critiques that came up a few times. Uh-huh. Um, so I went even further in that direction. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, for so forward, yes, 120 years. Um, I think I started with the idea that I wanted to see, you know, we talk about, with climate change, of course, we talk about uh, responsi- our responsibility to the future, right? What is the legacy mm-hmm. we leave for people who are going to come after us? And there's two things. First is a lot of, uh, guilt in that. Yeah. And, um, the other thing is I was wondering, did people before us think about that or is that a new thing? You know, like I know there's a lot of thought about what you leave to your children, but how people who came before us, how much did they think of what they were leaving the future? And, and so what I did was I created these, um, vignettes each scene takes place in a different time that well that's not completely true there's two storylines one is moving forward and one is moving backward the storyline moving forward is the storyline of free jeff nansen who is a, a polar explorer who at the uh, in the late 1800s uh, held the record of getting closest to the north pole as at a time where everybody was trying to get to the pole so that storyline is moving forward, but then the rest, the other storyline starts in present day and then moves back in time until it reaches the storyline, the Free Jeff's storyline. Um, and each vignette of that storyline, the one moving uh, backwards, takes place in a different year with completely different characters. And so the story we're following is what, how the decisions we make. Um, affect the the people who come after us. And in writing that, I discovered a lot of the time um, we make the best decisions. And I'm excluding, of course, a lot of modern day politicians and corporations. But on an individual level, a lot of the decisions we make um, are usually the, the best thing we think of at the time, you know, with the information we have, with what we know, we think that's the best thing. And then only in hindsight can we see that um, maybe the consequences are not what, what we expected. Mm. 
So yeah, this idea of kind of how we usually think about climate change is really interesting to me because it seems to me like probably a lot of the people who are going to come see a play about climate change are, are to some extent already on our side, right? There are already people who understand that climate change is real. It's, it's a problem that's worth addressing. So what's the further transformation that you hope to work in your audience members kind of after that point through the process of watching your play? I would say um, sh- a lot of time when people uh, bring up this question, I-, I feel like sometimes they maybe think that I don't know that. <laughs> but <Right. laughs> um, of course, somebody who's not interested in climate change. I mean, there are so few people who go to the theater to start with. And then yeah. from that subset, you know, getting people to go who are interested in climate, who will want to see a, a play about climate change, they have to be already interested in it. So that's that's a given. I'm not trying to change and, you know, to, I mean, I'm not going to like some rural place where this the, the level of denial is very high and trying to convert people. I live in New York. My plays mm-hmm. are done in big cities. So, of course, people who come are already um, interested. But... This said, um, there's a study that was done. uh, It keeps being updated by, um, I think it comes out of Yale, and it's called the Six Americas. And the Six Americas divides Americans into six different categories, depending on their attitude towards climate change. And at one end of the spectrum is complete denial. And at the other other end of the spectrum is, um, they call it uh, alarmist which are people who are like 100% engaged. And these two categories at each end uh, represent the smallest percentage of people. Everybody else is in the middle, is in the four categories of the the middle, which are like cautious, concern, and I forget what the other ones are. But essentially, I see my role as uh, talking to these four categories in the middle and trying to encourage them to you know, take one step further in what they're doing, or if they're not doing anything to maybe start doing a little thing, you know, just move people slowly towards um, being more active and engaged. Yeah, that's great. Uh, Yeah, because it's, you know, in a way, I mean, there's obviously the hardcore right wing climate denial that thinks it's all a hoax. But there's also a sort of maybe liberal climate denial that says climate change is real, but uh, we're going to be able to solve it by providing some tax incentives for energy companies to, I don't know, create more solar panels or something. Like these little tweaks around the edges are going to be enough, which is just as unscientific as, or maybe slightly less unscientific, but still uh, far from what the scientific consensus is on what we actually need to do to combat climate change, right? Yeah, and sometimes it's an it's a bit of an emotional barrier. It's so big and so overwhelming that people get um, paralyzed and you know going to see a play if you're going to be able to my hope is that if you can experience something a bit more personal if you can bring it down to something a bit smaller that you can do then maybe you can overcome this paralysis and find your way in right yeah i mean i think that's one of the things that your plays do really well which is so valuable is to kind of put a human face on climate change because like you said i mean it's it's, it, it takes place on timescales that are much larger than the typical way that we like to think in our kind of 24-hour news cycle world, even if it is an incredibly rapid climb scale, uh, time scale, 
uh, in terms of kind of geologic time, right? So, so shrinking it down into a, into a play and showing how it affects real people can be a way to kind of, I don't know, wrap our heads around the issue more, right? Yes. And it can, it can also be a way to, you know, you go, well, in <laughs> before COVID, you go to a theater, you sit in a room full of people and there's, I would think that there's something uh, comforting in knowing that all of these people in the, in the theater are share your interests and your concerns. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's a sense that you're not alone because when we, you know, you go back home and you're like, well, if I'm the only one doing this, what's the point? But if you feel like you're, you're if you sense you're part of something bigger, it's, I think it's encouraging. Right. Because being at home alone, there's really nothing you can do for climate change or any other political issue. It's only when we think of ourselves as members of a larger group that we have power. Right. Um, I'd love to talk more specifically about the play Forward. Uh, this character, Nansen, the uh, Norwegian explorer, is a historical figure, apparently quite well known in Norway. What drew you to him as a character? I was looking. So the, the first play, Sila, was about Canada, and I'm Canadian, so I had I know a lot. You know, I know a lot about the country, the culture, and in Norway, I had never even been to Norway before I went on my research trip for the play. So. I was looking for a way in that wouldn't be um, or that would help me sort of explore that place without it being, uh, I don't know, like I couldn't, I couldn't put myself in a, it would have been hard to put myself in a contemporary character because I don't know enough about the country and the culture. And so mm-hmm. a, a historical character, I had access to all of the, all of his history. And also because of what he did, you know, both in exploring the North Poland and he was very active in uh, um, supporting war refugees later on in his life, but he's sort of a bigger than life character. So it provided a, a point of entry and it also allowed me to, do this uh, cover cover this huge time uh, frame, the hundred and twenty years. Huh. Um, and he had a very particular theory about how to get to the North Pole that was uh, quite controversial at the time. Could you describe what his theory was and why it's relevant today? Yeah, he <laughs> he was pretty controversial, like you say. So before him, all of the explorers, the mindset was that you have to conquer nature, right? You have to like go against the element and be stronger and conquer nature. And what would happen uh, at the time was that uh, the ships would get trapped in ice because the sea ice forms. There's only a, there was only a short period of time where there was no sea ice in the Arctic where you could navigate. And then um, when the ship got trapped in ice, the ice would crush the hull, and invariably the most of the crews would just perish. A few survived, but most of them would just die. And um, the other thing that would happen is they would uh, develop. Uh, what is it called? It's something if you don't have enough vitamin C in your diet. Scurvy? Yes. Yes. So, and they had, and also they had terrible equipment. Uh, Nansen, he had been to Greenland before and had um, interacted with uh, the indigenous people there. So he had learned about the clothing, the dogs having uh, dogs in a sled, um, 
the, you know, some techniques. He was better informed to start with. And then at that time, there was a theory developed by, I think it was a, a Swedish uh, meteorolog meteorologist. <laughs> it's hard to pronounce. Um, mm -hmm. That said that there's a current at the pole, circular current. And so Nansen figured out, he thought, okay, if we, free, he, he designed a different boat. Uh, so the hull would not get crushed. The hull was rounder. And um, apparently it was terrible in the ocean because it wasn't stable. It would, you know, it was like the perfect boat to get sick on. But in the ice, the ice would couldn't grip the hull, so it would just push it up. So the the he that was a way to ensure that the boat wouldn't get destroyed. And then uh, he thought, okay, if we if we freeze, you know, if we stay there, and um, since there's a circular current, if we just freeze the the boat there. And wait, the current is going to take us to the pole. Um, and he was he was uh, ready for a five year journey. And the theory is correct, but the time frame is not. Uh, he five year, you know, he wouldn't have gotten to the pole in five years, and he realized that. And uh, I've had a, I have a friend who sent me an article after I wrote the play um, where a group of, or maybe it was two scientists, they studied, would he, is there any time between then and now where he would have made it to the pole? And there's some years where he might've gotten closer, but he still wouldn't have done it um, just by following the current. But it was, it was a completely, completely different uh, change. It was a change in ideology. Essentially it was like, I'm going to go with nature instead of fighting against it. Right. And does that, is that an inspiring notion to you today? Yeah, it's, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I mean, we, I think we have a, learn, a lot to learn from that because the, the mentality of going against is still very prevalent and going with is, uh, it's something you have to wrap your mind around and we have to be a lot more flexible and adaptive. Yeah, I think about the movie Snowpiercer. Do you know this movie? I haven't seen it. Okay, so there's the the it's like a science fiction movie. The premise is that, you know, the climate change reached such proportions that they had to inject these chemicals in the atmosphere that would cool down the atmosphere, but they put too much in and so now the earth is this like frozen shell. And in a way it seemed like oh, that's a climate future that seems plausible. <laughs> like that in a way seems more plausible to me than uh, you know, we pass a Green New Deal and we cut our emissions and we uh, protect our low-lying coastline. Like, it seems like it's almost harder to imagine a positive future with climate change than it is to imagine a dystopia. I know. Some people have said that um, part of the, the way that part of the reason that is, is because um, when you imagine a dystopia, you just take what you have now, and you make it worse. And imagine mm -hmm. imagining something positive, we actually have to imagine something completely different. Yeah. Um, if I'm working on this play, you collaborated with a Norwegian musician named Aggie Peterson. Could you describe what that collaboration was like? Yeah, Aggie is an uh, electropop singer-songwriter. And um, we went on a research trip before we met Aggie. And we uh, there was a theater in Tromsø, which is in the very north of the main mainland Norway, who invited us to come back and do... Um, a workshop there and 
they connect and we were looking for musicians. So they connected us with Aggie who wrote several songs for the play and the, in the play, there's one character who is the character of ice, sea ice. So one body on stage that, and comp- that uh, represents sea ice and ice only expresses herself through song. She never speaks. And a lot of, all of the songs that she sings were written by Aggie. Could you describe this character of Ice? She's a very kind of seductive uh, character. Yeah, I should have said earlier, I, I um, described it to Storyline, but Ice, there's actually three time frames because Ice exists outside of time. So she's both in the modern storyline, the one that goes backwards, and in Free Jeff Nansen's storyline, the one that goes forward. And um, she, she is sort of this mythical character that has always existed. And um, she, the way I use her in the play is that she's a, she's Nansen's fascination. So it's a, it's a bit of a love story. His, the, the reason for his reason for wanting to go to the pole is to get closer to her. And then, uh, and then he realizes that there are dangers to that too. And there were huge kind of geopolitical stakes of his expedition as well. He believed that it would help Norway become this prosperous modern country if he were able to get to the North Pole. Why did he feel like those two things were connected? Because Norway had been now. I don't. I am. I don't have my timeline. Um, I don't have the timeline straight in my head. But sure. I think so. Uh, Norway had been under Swedish rule, and I. I th- I can't remember either they got their um, independence right before. Yeah. I think they got the independence right before um, Nansen went to the North pole. So there was a need for them to, for for Norwegians, for the country to prove themselves. And at the time, you know, now we have like, you can, I I guess you can, maybe a good analogy would be like this race for the coronavirus um, vaccine Mm -hmm. at the moment. Right. The country who's going to um, be first is going to be the country that can claim all this technological know-how and, you know, they can shine. And um, in at that time, it was like getting to the pole, well, both to the North and the South Pole, because um, there were no, Norway has a big history of polar explorers and with Admundsen, Admundsen, who tried to get to the North Pole and several others. So it was a way of... Um, putting themselves on the map. It was a poor country. They were mostly farmers and fishermen. And so it was, you know, they were trying to have a seat at the world's table, I guess. Yeah. And another kind of uh, moment that comes up in a couple of the scenes that are moving backwards is uh, the discovery of oil in the sea uh, off the coast of Norway which really established established Norway as a very prosperous nation kind of suddenly. And they had already begun the process of forming a welfare state, but oil money really made that uh, much easier to do, Uh, which then makes it so that uh, Norwegian social democracy is in some ways complicit in climate change, uh, which is maybe not so uh, comforting a thought to us North American liberals who maybe look to Norway as something of an example. So uh, could you talk about why you wanted to include that information in the play? Yes. So the, 
I mean, it's it's impossible not to include it, right? If you're going to track the evolution of the country, um, mm-hmm. it's such a big moment and it was so transformative that uh, it has to be included. But it is true that it's very um, uncomfortable. And a lot of the actors we work with in Norway, they were all Norwegian actors or the people we interacted with, they all said it you know they all said well we're benefiting from this but at the same time it's terrible and so there's both a sense of being grateful but feeling guilty about it um and they i mean there's you know there's all kinds of intricacies about how they feel about the system of course it always looks better from the outside um because there's i don't know there's like there's some money that goes into a pot and then it for social services, but there's some controversy about that too. You know, I don't remember all of the specifics, but yeah, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a very complicated subject, just like it is in most places, but we don't always know all of the nuances. I mean, these days, I think Norway is um, really investing into, you know, electric cars and all of that, but mm-hmm. they're, they're they're drilling in other countries like they're just, yeah. yeah um yeah that sort of reminds me of the the oscar wilde idea that utopia is always the country that you're sailing towards <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah which is maybe a quite nansen-ish idea <laughs> um a big thread in the play too is kind of nansen's historical legacy in Norway and the, and like many such figures who is the sort of uh, founding father, um, there's been controversy about him uh, and people's opinions of him have been uh, a little less rosy in contemporary times than they had been previously. Could you describe a little bit about how his legacy factors into your play? Yeah. So after he went to the North Pole. Um, it took only five years before he was uh, somebody took the title before somebody actually made it. Um, But he, I think he, he stayed a very prominent figure. And then uh, during world war one, is that right? Yes. During world war one, he created the Nansen passport, which was a way to um, give some kind of citizenship to refugees of war who was who were displaced and couldn't you know didn't belong to anywhere they didn't belong to the country they left and they didn't belong to the country where they arrived so he was very active in doing that but he was also um well <laughs> one thing one thing that happened while I was writing the play is that these photos surface he was a big womanizer um, mm-hmm. And these photos surface where he had been sending nudes to uh, a mistress who who he met in the U.S. And uh, they only saw them, each other once. And then he, they kept the correspondence and then he died shortly after. But he sent nude photos of himself and that surfaced <laughs> while I was writing the play. And he was in wow. his 60s. Um, uh-huh. And when, but interestingly, when I when I brought that up uh, in Norway, you know, people they of course they knew about it, but they're like, no, don't put that in your play, you know, like, <laughs> like people have strong reaction to that, and it's not necessarily to, I mean, whatever he did, it's you know, by today's standard, is pretty harmless. Like, okay, he sent nude pictures of himself to 
somebody he wasn't married to. Um, mm-hmm. But it's like we don't need to completely soil what he achieved um, just for that. But he was also a, a, a I think he was, I, I don't know, my interpretation of what I read about him, would I would say he was probably bipolar. He was mm. very moody and he would flip-flop between be, be, being very excited about stuff and being incredibly depressed. And I think he was probably difficult to be around. Yeah. It's very, I wonder if- he embodies sort of the macho um, idea of the time. And you, you explore that macho idea in the play a bit that originally his idea is that he's going to sort of, uh, you know, almost conquer nature as if she were a woman that he were seducing or something. Yeah. 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 Because that was the, that was the, I, you know, that was the idea. I'm making it a bit more poetic, but that was the idea of the time. It's like men, men above everything and man is, it's man's responsibility to sort of subdue everything. Yeah, that that sort of yeah, that notion of kind of conquering nature has proven to be quite a destructive one. I wonder if people uh, anticipated that at the time at all. I, probably not. It was, you know, if you've been, um, well, actually, I'm I'm doubting when I'm. I was about to say I was going to say, you know, if you've been fighting for your survival in all kinds of ways. Um, it probably feels like you have to conquer nature, but then you have indigenous nations who didn't live like that at all. So, Mm -hmm. um, but I guess it's not surprising, I guess from an, uh, Western, you know, European point of view where it was indoctrinated in that culture for a long, long time. And so it was just the extension of, uh, the beliefs of the time. And that idea too of of learning from native practices. I mean, you talked about Nansen kind of designing his coats uh, based on uh, native people that he'd met in Greenland. That also feels like a metaphor for how our civilization, our kind of Western civilization, might learn from indigenous cultures in terms of how to live more sustainably with our natural surroundings. Yeah, I think uh, Nansen himself credited his time with the indigenous people for his survival because he, he and the way he got, so he did abandon his ship when he realized he wasn't going to make it. He abandoned his ship. Um, they had dogs on the boat and they had a sled. No, they didn't have a sled. They, they um, I think they used wood from crates or, you know, they, they, they built a sled yeah, from wow. the wood we they had on the ship. And then the way he tried to get to the North Pole was on ski, uh, on skis with one partner and the dogs and a sled, which is how he had, he had uh, crossed the Greenland ice sheet on skis before in a sled, I think. Um, so he, he, he had learned from that experience. And then um, whatever else he, because once he, once he got from one end of the ice sheet in Greenland to the other end, it was too late for him to come back, to go back home. So he had to spend the, sum, the winter there and wait for the next summer. And I think he lived and he friended um, a lot of indigenous, he lived with and friended a lot of indige- indigenous people while he was there. And that's how he learned a lot of things. But, um, you know, I think about it today, they were wearing wool <laughs> that was their protection <laughs> against the elements. Whoa. I mean, imagine surviving that. 
Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. I mean, I definitely just hearing you talk about him, I I can sense that you do admire that kind of chutzpah of going into the the north and trying to survive there, even if you understand that there are things about the way that he thought about that that are quite problematic. Yeah, I became completely enamored with him. <laughs> he's such a I mean, he's such a character. He's so big so much bigger than life. And um, his writing is exquisite. He, he, um, his drawings, he also drew a lot uh, of things he saw when he was there. I mean, he was clearly a very bright and talented man and very um, uh, conflicted person, but um, just, just fascinating. I think he, if I met him in person, I would be so both fascinated and sort of appalled at him. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I sort of see the character of Ice perhaps as you in the play to a certain extent, you know, being kind of both fascinated and repelled by him. Uh, yeah, I was trying to make Ice... Um, also, I mean, you... Free Jeff is such a... Is such a bigger than life character that you need something like that to face him. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, he just completely overtakes everybody. So um, I like creating a mythical character to uh, go against him, you know, to be sort of something to uh, for him to hit against was uh, very useful. Can I ask you um, if you're what, the, how the third play in the cycle is going? Yeah, the third play is about Alaska, and um, I uh, have a theater who is committed in Anchorage in Alaska who is committed to um, presenting it whenever we can. And so it's a one-person uh, play. I mm. I decided to try something different. So since since the first two plays required a lot of actors and are you know therefore a lot of resources to produce, um, and also just from an aesthetic point of view, I thought how, you know, I've represented communities by using a lot of people. And is there a way to represent community just with one person? Um, so I'm, uh, I'm almost done with the first draft. There will be a Zoom reading in a couple of weeks. And then we'll just keep going forward, hoping that um, in the spring, we're able to present it. Wow, that sounds fascinating. It's it's interesting that in each of your plays so far in the cycle, you've kind of reinvented the form of how you're telling these stories. That that kind of keeps me interested. Um, I if it's something I've done before, I'm like, okay, I've done it. Uh, and also, I feel like the it you know it's taking me so much time that every time I start a new play, we're at a completely different place in terms of our relationship to the climate mm-hmm. crisis. So there's got to be a way to represent that too. When you think about the climate crisis, are you at all optimistic? Uh, <laughs> you're asking at an interesting time. Um, I, I, I'm aware of, I, I feel like any time would be an interesting time. I mean, like you said, our relationship to these, uh, this, these, these realities are constantly shifting. Yeah. Am I optimistic? I don't, uh, hmm. am I optimistic? I would say it doesn't matter, right? Because optimistic is about the outcome. Mm-hmm. And um, whether the outcome is going to be what I would like it to be or not, the work doesn't change. Yeah. So, yeah. 
you know, I, um, yeah, that's the best way I can answer it at the moment. I mean, there's not a lot that's pointing to a rosy future right now. Mm-hmm. Does that mean we have, we can't, we have to, or can give up? No. Um, so I, I, here's another way to answer. I think of the climate crisis as I would think of somebody who has cancer, you know, whether the end is near or not, you're just going to fight for that person to be as happy and as comfortable and everything you can until the very end. So that's how I think about it. Yeah. Sometimes I think about the idea from uh, Antonio Gramsci of uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will that you, you sort of with a sober eye, look at how stacked against you the odds are. And yet you find the strength within yourself to persevere, despite the fact that you know that if you were a betting man, you wouldn't bet on yourself. Right. I, you know, if, uh, if we look at the state of the country at the moment, it's sort of the same thing. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, am I optimistic? <laughs> I don't know, but it doesn't mean that we can't fight for the best possible outcome. I was talking to a friend of mine who's Canadian last summer, I believe it was. And, you know, I was kind of doing the typical American lefty thing of uh, disparaging America at Canada's expense. And she sort of stopped me and said, do you want to know what it's like to live in Canada? Here's what it's like. On Monday, Trudeau issued an apology to Native communities for uh, ecological destruction of their land. On Tuesday, he gave a big speech about how important it is to tackle climate change. On Wednesday, he authorized a new pipeline through Native American land. Right. So, I mean, do you feel like that was, I'm thinking back to forward, do you feel like analyzing the ways that Norway has been complicit in climate change, despite the sort of social democratic values was in a way your way of talking about Canada? Uh, Yeah, maybe some of it is a little similar, Um, but I had already written about Canada So, Mm -hmm. you know, I was interested in specifically in what was going on in Norway. And of course, you know, I I keep learning this again and again, but you can only learn so much by doing research. You have to ultimately you have to go there and talk to people. And that's when I that's when we learn the most about the nuances, you know, what's working, what's not, what's not part of the official government um, message. What are people experiencing on the ground? But in relation to Canada, it's it's also been a, a bit of a learning curve because when I moved to the U.S., I moved to the U.S. in 1997. And mm. at the time, I really felt like Canada had its shit together. You know, Canada <laughs> was like we had good social um, programs. We had good safety nets. Um, the concern for the environment was great. You know, I thought it was it was good. Um, but since then, of course, the tar sands have been, uh, have flourished in incredible ways and in incredible destructive ways. And now when I look at Canada, I'm like, oh, it's not, you know, it's not what it was or what I thought it was maybe 20 years ago, because there's, there are a lot of problems there too. There's still things that we do very well, um, but they're, they're, it's definitely not as rosy as it seems from the outside. And sometimes um, I remember going to see Michael, some of Michael Moore's movies where he goes to Canada and I'm like, dude, you know, <laughs> if 
you know. Right. No, <laughs> it's not. Um, it's it maybe a little bit like that at a certain play in a certain place at a certain time, but it's too easy to make that kind of comparison. Right. There's the one where he goes to uh, I forget where in Canada. But you go somewhere and just starts opening random people's doors to prove that people in Canada don't lock their doors. And it's like, okay, I'm not sure quite what your point is there. Yeah, because, of course, people lock their doors in Toronto and Vancouver, you know. Yeah, you can probably go to some small rural place in the U.S. and people don't lock their doors. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like we've been on a bit of a downer the last few minutes. So (laughs) I want to finish with, you know, maybe a little bit more of an optimistic note. Um, something that gives me hope is seeing all of the activism from young people. I mean, I'm 28 and even I'm thinking even of people, you know, 10 or 15 years younger than me who really seem to understand that this is kind of the issue that touches every other issue that we face as a country and as a world. So does that give you hope at all? Kind of seeing, you know, Greta Thunberg and and other uh, youth climate activists really uh, making this a, a a matter of global concern? Yes, it gives me, and I do a lot of, um, I talk to a lot of students through workshops or visits to universities. It used to be in person, now it's on Zoom. And I see so much interest and concern and uh, desire to want to change things. Um, Yeah, that gives me hope because, I mean, I hate for that burden to be on them, but at the same time, I feel like... uh, the young generation, they, they're the ones, I don't know, like the old generation is just not doing it. We're not doing it. And so it's going to, it's going to take younger people to come in and shake things up and take over. And, um, and then maybe the, the change can start to happen. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. So Chantal Bilodeau, thanks so much for coming on the program to talk about your play forward. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure.